Hello everyone and welcome back to The Corporate Casket. My name is Blair and today I'm going to be talking about the VA or the Department of Veterans Affairs. Now, before I get started with this video, I think it's important to clarify that the VA is, as CNBC puts it, rooted in noble intentions. Providing healthcare services to veterans isn't controversial in of itself, but the VA, well, that's a bit of a different story. But before we get into all of that, of course, we need to start with the VA's history. So let's just jump right into today's episode. The Department of Veterans Affairs has roots that can be traced all the way back to 1636. According to the VA's website, when the Pilgrims of Plymouth Colony were at war with the Prequat Indians, the Pilgrims passed a law that stated that disabled soldiers would be supported by the colony. As important as disabled soldiers receiving support may be, I'd say a far more accurate version of events would be that the Prequat Native Americans were massacred as opposed to any war you might have in mind. Pilgrims and Native American history aside though, the next step in establishing the VA came over a century later in 1776. Then the Continental Congress encouraged enlistments during the Revolutionary War, providing pensions to disabled soldiers. The VA website states, in the early days of the Republic, individual states and communities provided direct medical and hospital care to veterans. In 1811, the federal government authorized the first domiciliary and medical facility for veterans. Also in the 19th century, the nation's veterans assistance program was expanded to include benefits and pensions, not only for veterans, but for their widows and dependents. Following the civil war, many state veteran homes were established. Since domiciliary care was available at all state veterans homes, incidental medical and hospital treatment was provided for all injuries and diseases, whether or not of service origin. Indigent or disabled veterans of the Civil War, Indian Wars, Spanish-American War, and Mexican border period, as well as the discharged regular members of the armed forces received care at these homes. It wasn't until 1917 when the US entered World War I that a new system of veterans benefits was established. There were programs for disability compensation, insurance for service personnel and veterans, and vocational rehabilitation. By the 1920s, three different federal agencies administered the various benefits, the Veterans Bureau, the Bureau of Pensions of the Interior Department, and the National Home for Disabled Volunteer Soldiers. The first consolidation of federal veterans programs was August 9th, 1921, when Congress combined all World War I veterans programs to create the Veterans Bureau. The second consolidation came nine years later on July 21st, 1930, when President Herbert Hoover signed Executive Order 5398 and elevated the Veterans Bureau to a federal administration, giving it the name it has today, the VA. This was in part because of World War I, the first fully mechanized war, which exposed soldiers to mustard gas, chemicals, and fumes that required specialized care when the war was over. Years later, however, after World War II, there was a vast increase in the veteran population and Congress enacted large numbers of new benefits for war veterans, the most significant of which was World War II GI bills signed into law June 22, 1944. It is said the GI Bill had more impact on the American way of life than any other law since the Homestead Act of 1862. The GI Bill placed VA second to the war and Navy departments in funding and personnel priorities. 
Modernizing the VA for a new generation of veterans was crucial and replacement of the old guard World War I leadership became a necessity. The VA Home Loan Guarantee Program is the only provision of the original GI Bill that is still in force. Between the end of World War II and 1966, one-fifth of all single-family residences built were financed by the GI Bill for either World War II or Korean War veterans. From 1944 through December 1993, the VA guaranteed 13.9 million home loans valued at more than $433.1 billion. To assist the veteran between discharge and reemployment, the 1944 GI Bill also provided unemployment benefits of $20 per week to a maximum of 52 weeks. It was a lesser amount than the unemployment benefits available to non-veterans. This assistance avoided a repetition of the World War I demobilization when unemployed veterans were reduced to relying on charities for food and water. So is the VA rooted in good intentions? Absolutely. Helping veterans find homes, receive comprehensive healthcare and unemployment benefits is a worthy cause. Emotional rehabilitation for veterans with PTSD is important. And so is helping veterans re-enter the workforce when for so many, it can present a major challenge. The VA is also supposed to help homeless veterans off the streets and claim that no veteran should be without a place to call home. This is what the VA was intended to help with and to some extent they have. I'm not saying throw the whole system away completely, but at the very least, the VA does need some serious help. One issue I saw brought up consistently in my research was the quality of care these veterans receive. Even though I'm going to use news articles and reputable sources as per usual, I also asked a veteran that I know directly if he had any experience with the VA. The veteran in question will be named John. He was deployed in Afghanistan as an infantryman for 13 months from 2012 to 2013, when he was 20 and 21 years old. I asked him what his experience was, and he said he didn't even get a VA card because he had to wait hours and hours online trying to even sign up. I heard so many bad stories, he said, that I felt like I would just be better off without them. The doctors at the army were fresh out of school, not experienced or really ready for what they were doing, and I didn't think the VA would be much better. I felt like if I got a VA card, I was signing up for welfare. I didn't want to be treated like that. John says he was lucky he didn't need them as much as some of his fellow veterans because in his colorful language, they're all rude and disrespectful to deal with and they don't really help too much. They stand around with their fingers up their you know what's. The treatment and stories he's talking about are unfortunately not uncommon. At first I thought, hey, maybe John just happened to catch them on a bad day, but according to USA Today, that's not the case. One article from February 7th, 2019 reads, when Navy veteran Phyllis Seleska, 66, arrived at the emergency room at the Department of Veterans Affairs Hospital in Loma Linda, California in August, 2017, the waiting room was crowded with dozens of veterans, some in wheelchairs lined up to the entrance. Seleska suffered throbbing pain after shattering her wrist, but received no medication and had to wait more than seven hours to see a doctor, records show. By then, the orthopedic staff had gone home. A nurse strapped a Velcro splint on her wrist and told her to come back in the morning. I don't know why it took so long to get back there to be told, we can't do anything to help you, said Seleska, who worked on the flight deck of aircraft carriers in both Iraq wars. Her experience wasn't unusual. At roughly 70% of VA hospitals, the median time between arrival in the emergency room and admission was longer than at other hospitals, in some cases by hours, according to a USA Today analysis of the department's data. That included Loma Linda, where the medium wait was more than seven and a half hours. 
The USA Today analysis provides the most comprehensive picture of how 146 VA medical centers compare with other healthcare facilities on an array of factors. The analysis is based on scores of spreadsheets the VA posted online in recent years, containing comparisons of its medical centers with non-VA averages on everything from the ER wait times to infection rates and patient survey results. There were a couple positives like VA hospitals reporting lower death rates than other facilities since they stacked up on preventions of post-surgical complications, yet dozens of VA hospitals had higher rates of preventable infections and severe bed sores, a potential sign of neglect. Again, there's some that are good. One in Asheville has received high praise and they've been relatively successful, but it's rare to see most VA hospitals follow in those footsteps. On patient satisfaction surveys, veterans overall were less likely than non-VA patients to say medical workers treated them with respect or listened to and respected what they had to say, the US Today analysis found. They were less likely to recommend VA hospitals to others and rated their medical care providers lower. The VA scorecards analyzed by USA Today feature questions for inpatients and outpatients about their healthcare experiences. Nearly every VA facility, 141 out of 146, scored lower than other facilities on a majority of questions surveyed. In one case, a man named Stephen Wilson took photos of the VA hospital room his son, a veteran of the US Army, was assigned to. To say the room was unsanitary would be an understatement. There was garbage all over the counter, no place to wash hands, and the instruments weren't cleaned. Need I remind anyone that that was in fact a hospital room? Unsanitary conditions might happen when you're out and about in stores or restaurants or whatever. People make messes all the time, but of all places to have an unsanitary condition, a hospital should not be one of them. But this case was just a drop in the bucket. It's nothing compared to what's happened in other VAs. In 2014, the Salt Lake Tribune wrote, the director of Salt Lake City's Veterans Hospital has been deployed to Phoenix to oversee the medical center at the heart of a nationwide controversy over veteran waiting time and deaths. Stephen Young will oversee the Phoenix VA healthcare system on Monday, the Department of Veterans Affairs announced. The Phoenix VA is responsible for an estimated 85,000 veterans and an operating budget of about $500 million. The move comes as the Phoenix VA tries to restore its reputation while it's under investigation for possible patient deaths. In recent weeks, critics of the VA system have alleged that administrators in Phoenix kept an off the books list to conceal long wait times as 40 veterans died waiting to get an appointment. Director Sharon Hellman and two other employees were placed on administrative leave on May 1st. The claims are the latest to emerge as VA hospitals around the country struggle to handle the huge volume of patients who need medical attention, including aging vets and a newer influx from wars over the last decade. In the past year, VA facilities in South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, and Washington state have been linked to delays in patient care or poor oversight. Government investigators reported this month that employees at a veteran's medical clinic in Fort Collins, Colorado, were instructed to falsify records to make it appear as though patients were getting appointments close to the day requested. What's most sad of all is that this article says things are slowly improving. So if this is improvement, well, what does that say about where they've come from, you know? Now, before we move on here, I want to understand what happened in Phoenix. And luckily for me, there obviously was an investigation done. I mean, falsified records and wrongful deaths probably don't happen in every VA, but I wanted to know how it happened in this one or you know, if it even did in the first place. 
According to a report put out in 2014 by the VA Office of the Inspector General, they reviewed allegations at the Phoenix VA healthcare system that included gross mismanagement of VA resources, criminal misconduct by VA hospital leadership, systemic patient safety issues, and possible wrongful deaths. We initiated this review in response to allegations first reported to the VA OIG hotline. We expanded our work at the request of the former VA secretary and the chairman of the House Committee on Veterans Affairs following an HVAC hearing on April 9th, 2014 on delays in VA medical care and preventable veteran deaths. Since receiving those requests, we have received other congressional requests, including those submitted by the chair and ranking members of the following committees or subcommittees. A whistleblower in February, 2014, the report states, alleged that 40 veterans died waiting for an appointment. From the review, they identified 28 instances of clinically significant delays. But of those 28 cases, six were deceased, not 40. They also identified 17 care deficiencies that were unrelated to access or scheduling, and of the 17 patients, 14 were deceased. They also found problems with access to care for patients needing urology services, dealing with diseases in the urinary tract system. They also state, our analysis found that the majority of the veteran patients we reviewed were on official or unofficial wait lists and experienced delays accessing primary care. In some cases, pressing clinical issues required specialty care, which some patients were already receiving through VA or non-VA providers. For example, a patient may have been seeing a VA cardiologist, but he was on the wait list to see a PCP at the time of his death. While the case reviews in the report document poor quality of care, we are unable to conclusively assert that the absence of timely quality care caused the deaths of these veterans. And I want to be fair here, and I don't want people walking away from this saying that people absolutely died as a result of long wait times. Those are the allegations, but they haven't been proven. We can't know for a fact if some patients would have been alive today had they had an earlier appointment in the VA. However, what is true and what has been proven is that there are gross mishandling of schedules at the Phoenix location. The report states, as of April 22nd, 2014, we identified about 1400 veterans waiting to receive a scheduled primary care appointment who were appropriately included on the PVAHCSEWL, the electronic wait list. However, as our work progressed, we identified over 3,500 additional veterans, many of whom were on what we determined to be unofficial wait lists, waiting to be scheduled for appointments, but not on the official EWL. These veterans were at risk of never obtaining their requested or necessary appointments. PVA, HCS, senior administrative and clinical leadership were aware of unofficial wait lists and that access delays existed. Timely resolution of these access problems had not been effectively addressed by PVA, HCS, senior administrative and clinical leadership. From interviews of 79 PVA HCS employees involved in the scheduling process, we identified the following types of scheduling practice not in compliance with VHA policy. Some schedulers identified multiple inappropriate scheduling practices. 30 staff say they use the wrong desired date of care resulting in appointments showing a false zero day wait time. 11 staff stated they fixed or were instructed to fix appointments with wait times greater than 14 days. They did this by rescheduling the appointment for the same date and time, but with a later desired date. 
28 staff stated they either printed out or received printouts of patient information for scheduling purposes. Staff said they kept the printouts in their desks for days or sometimes weeks before the veterans were scheduled an appointment or placed on the EWL. PVA HCS executives and senior clinical staff were aware that their subordinate staff were using inappropriate scheduling practices. In January 2012 and later in May 2013, the Veterans Integrated Services Network 18 director issued two reports that found PVA HCS did not comply with VHA's scheduling policy. As a result of using inappropriate scheduling practices, reported wait times were unreliable and we could not obtain reasonable assurance that all veterans seeking care received the care they needed. Many of the allegations against the VA hospitals have some credibility, even if they're not quite as bad as some sources make them sound. Many of the medical facilities investigated were canceling appointments and rescheduling them to make wait times seem like less than what they were. And management at one facility directly told schedulers to do this. So yes, there were cases of delayed care without a doubt, and no one could argue given that this is the VA, it makes it especially despicable that it would happen here, as opposed to a system that isn't federally funded by taxpayer dollars. Yet on the other hand, the New York Times posted an article in June, 2020 from the perspective of a veteran that after meeting with a psychiatrist at the VA in Manhattan, was able to get some rest and reduce his stress and anxiety. And in 2018, another source said that the quality of care isn't nearly as bad as we've been made to believe through most media sources. Consistent with previous studies, our analysis found that the VA healthcare system generally provides care that is higher in quality than what is offered elsewhere in communities across the nation, said Rebecca Anang Price, lead author of the study and senior policy researcher at RAND, a nonprofit research organization. While the study found wide variation in the quality of care provided across the VA health system, the variation is smaller than what researchers observed among non-VA health providers. Some of the variation may be caused by patients being generally older and sicker at some VA facilities than at others, but researchers say the findings primarily suggest that the VA needs targeted quality improvement efforts to ensure that veterans receive uniformly high care at all VA facilities. The variation among VA health facilities show that veterans in some areas are not receiving the same high quality care that other VA facilities are able to provide, said Carrie Farmer, a study co-author and senior policy researcher at RAND. Another article published from the NCBI leaves me with pretty mixed feelings, saying that results in terms of availability of services and complications were mixed as opposed to poor. Just last year in 2019, military.com said the VA struggles with scheduling issues and tracking wait times and the VA no doubt has farther still to go. But then in early January, 2020, the inspector general said long wait times could still continue. So overall in terms of quality of care, yeah, I'd say the VA has a ways to go. It seems like they're trying, but there's a lot of improvement that still needs to be done here, especially after what we saw in Phoenix. However, although hospital care is one of the largest focal points of the VA when we're talking about their issues, it's not the only one either. Some bosses have been accused of excessive spending within the VA as recently as 2018. An article from CNBC in February of that year reads, a scathing report released Wednesday criticizes Veteran Affairs Secretary David Shulkin for telling a subordinate to handle personal travel plans for him and his wife during an official trip to Europe. It also criticizes him for improperly accepting Wimbledon tennis tournament tickets as a gift during the trip. 
The report, among other serious derelictions, also accuses Shulkin's chief of staff of potential criminal conduct by making false statements and altering a document so that the Veterans Affairs Department could improperly pay for Shulkin's wife to travel to Europe with him at a cost to taxpayers of $4,312. The report by the Inspector General's Office of the VA says that the department worker effectively acted as a personal travel concierge to Shulkin and his wife for that trip to Copenhagen and London. Shulkin and the VA made misstatements to the media about aspects of the trip, the report says, with Shulkin inaccurately claiming to a reporter that he had bought the tennis match tickets. And I don't think I really have to tell anyone why this is so messed up. And again, just because the VA has done a lot of good since they were founded, doesn't mean we can't shine a light on these issues. And it doesn't really seem as if proper action is taken against the people with these problems either. Inspector General Michael Massal concluded the report by recommending that Shulkin reimburse the VA for his wife's airfare, that he reimburse the woman who gave him the Wimbledon tickets, and that Shulkin take appropriate administrative action against his chief of staff, among other steps. Shulkin, in a response to the report, disputed a number of its conclusions, but said he would consult with the VA's general counsel about whether to make the reimbursements recommended. Shulkin also said that the VA had inadequate opportunity to review the IG's report in advance of its release. The thing is, top officials in the Trump administration have been doing this for ages. Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price resigned when news reports said he repeatedly flew Price private jets at expense to taxpayers. Scott Pruitt, the Environmental Protection Agency administrator, has had similar issues, and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and his wife, Louise Linton, had to reimburse the government for Louise's travel on a government plane. If top officials in the White House were doing this, well then, it doesn't really surprise me that a top official in the VA is one of them doing it too. And I can't quite put my finger on why this feels just somewhat scummier to me, but it does. Maybe it's because with a title like treasury secretary, some officials feel sort of removed from the public eye. It feels a bit less like what he does would affect anyone, let alone a vulnerable group of people. But hearing that an official at the VA does this when the VA is supposed to stand for helping veterans, it just bothers me all the more. But then again, that could be just me. And I'm not saying this behavior is excusable in either instance, just to make that clear. Now, what about improvements? If I had to sum it up and explain the biggest problem at the VA, it would simply be that they just can't keep up. And now it's time to thank today's sponsor, Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases, memoirs, business motivation, and anything else you can imagine under the sun. Audible allows you to listen to books on the go so that you can do other things while you're listening in case you don't have the time to sit down and just read the traditional book instead. Recently, I've been listening to an old classic. It's a book that I actually have on my library shelf, but I just don't have the time to read it right now because I'm so crunched with everything going on. So while I'm doing laundry or in the car driving, I like to listen to a book called Traffic, Why We Drive the Way We Do and What It Says About Us. And it's by Tom Vanderbilt. And it's a fascinating book. I absolutely love this thing. And I'm so happy that I can just listen to it now instead of having to sit down and read it. And it's just all about like the psychology of driving and what kind of driving styles mean and how is it good or bad for society. And now you can catch up on this book or any of your favorites or even something new you wanna listen to with today's offer. Make sure to visit audible.com slash casket or text casket to 500-500 to start your free 30-day trial. 
even if you're not interested in nonfiction books, which is what I mainly tend to read, but if you're super into fiction, whatever it is that you like to read, there are tons of titles for you to choose from on Audible and all of them are narrated by people who have extremely soothing voices, which is also very helpful. Again, make sure you go to audible.com slash casket, or again, text casket to 500-500 to start your free 30-day trial of Audible. The VA hasn't always had reports of excessive spending and inadequate healthcare. They were elevated to federal administration status in 1930 because the VA was trusted to take care of and honor the men and women who served in battle. But now after a growing list of military operations, including the 17 year long war in Afghanistan, they can't keep up. This seems especially true when we take a look at how many homeless veterans are out there. One Psychology Today article says, Despite numerous media stories about homeless veterans and the problems they face, actual studies exploring the incidents and causes of veteran homelessness remain scarce. According to one estimate, the number of veterans without stable accommodation was placed at nearly 58,000 or 12% of the known homeless across the US as of 2013. A cohort study collecting data on 310,000 individuals who served in the military from 2005 to 2006 reported a five-year homeless incidence at 3.7% after leaving the military. That same study identified the strongest predictors of homelessness as military pay grade, substance abuse, and being diagnosed with a psychotic disorder. Another cohort study looking at formerly homeless veterans found that 44% experienced at least one day of homelessness within five years after being successfully placed in housing and that drug use and post-traumatic stress were among the strongest predictors of later homelessness. While the US Department of Veterans Affairs has spent decades attempting to address veteran homelessness, it remains unclear how effective their programs have been to date, given the number of veterans living on the street. Some say a part of the problem has to do with veterans not wanting to ask for help as the veteran I spoke with John implied earlier when he said, for him at least, it felt like applying to be on welfare. Asking for help is hard enough, but asking for help with PTSD when you're trained to be army tough or built army strong sounds even harder. The VA's Office of Rural Health is trying to help veterans who live far away and offer transportations and telehealth services. Representative Beto O'Rourke from Texas also introduced a proposal in 2015 to improve the El Paso VA healthcare system, which as of 2018 has been going smoothly. So it's not as if there's no hope in sight and no improvements being made. Not to mention O'Rourke's attitude is pretty spot on in this article as he's been quoted as saying, we don't trust the VA to tell us how the VA is doing. We trust veterans to tell us how the VA is doing. Overall, I think every VA should be thinking that way, especially considering how Phoenix managed to fudge their numbers. Not everything is going better now by any means. During the pandemic, many VA hospitals and clinics have said they have or had inadequate gear. One New York Times article from April, 2020 read, The VA department officials have repeatedly denied that workers across their healthcare system, which serve 9 million veterans and has 390,000 employees have inadequate gear, even as complaints against the department have been rising. Overall, at least 1,604 workers have become sick with the coronavirus and 14 have died. The department until recently had been recommending that healthcare workers who tested positive for the virus return to work if they did not have symptoms, the opposite of advice the federal government has given the rest of the nation. The department now says people who are under investigation for possibly having the virus may come to work, not those tested positive. 
The VA has continually tried to shake the bad name it's gotten for itself, but it hasn't been easy. Despite some changes, a recent conviction in July, 2020 certainly didn't help them. Rita Mays, who worked with the Lewis A. Johnson Veteran Affairs Medical Center in Clarkson, West Virginia in 2017 and 2018, administered fatal doses of insulin to military veterans who had not been prescribed it. She also pleaded guilty to a charge of assault with intent to commit murder in the case of an eighth patient who survived. Then, just a couple months later in August, the New York Times published an article that said an emergency room doctor at the center in Washington, D.C. was heard saying she did not care if a veteran who came in killed himself, which he later did. They also wrote that, the recent slowdown over the postal service has also caused problems for veterans who get roughly 80% of their prescriptions through the mail. For weeks, reports of a slowdown in the orders have mounted. Last week, several healthcare workers complained about the problem. A doctor at a Veterans Affairs Community Care Center in the Denver area said that roughly 15% of his patients reported that their drugs were going to the wrong place or not arriving at all. A colleague in New Orleans told him the center there had set up an outdoor tent outside the facility to help veterans scrambling for important medications like insulin. So with all of this going on, is the VA getting better? Well, sort of. In some cases, yes, and in other cases, no, not really. I know plenty of people have had other problems with them, but these were some of the larger issues that I could find. Again, I don't want people thinking the VA does no good for anyone, simply that they're far from perfect, and I thought it was something worth discussing and bringing more awareness to. So with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, make sure to consider following the podcast to make sure you always stay up to date with the latest episodes. There's a new episode every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to keep you entertained throughout the week. Thank you for listening to the newest episode of The Corporate Casket, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.